0: amen that's good singing tonight isn't it uh, great great songs uh to get our hearts prepared to be able to take of communion this evening i want to encourage you um to be preparing your messages going on and to be thinking about what is being uh, said and thought through i know some of you are probably thinking that um the Esther study is over it is not. We're going to study a little bit of Esther tonight, but it's not going to necessarily be in the book of Esther, but it is about Esther, all right? So let me encourage you to do this. Go ahead and get your Bibles out, whether you have a written copy of God's Word or whether you have it uh, in your in your phone or your tablet. And Psalm 22, Psalm 22, let's look at Psalm 22 this evening and. Now, many of you know that I resource many a times to outside uh, historical references for a lot of the Bible studies that I do, and one of the things I want to bring to your attention tonight is uh, some of those, some of those uh, documents and places where I go to find cultural and historical data are uh, utilized by many uh, rabbis and other Jewish uh, organizations, teachers, uh, that would utilize these to teach what's going on. They would... Um, They would look at these documents and historically uh, interpret them and utilize them for uh, teaching their synagogues and so forth. And I think it's important that we recognize that though these documents aren't the Word of God, so they're not infallible, they're, they're, they're just recorded historical books, I think that we need to recognize we can find a lot of information and we can get Uh, a lot of uh, background to what we're reading in the scriptures and learn a little bit more and get a little deeper in it. So Psalm 22, I want you to turn that now. I I want you to understand that the the madrish, now when you read a madrish, which is a a Hebrew historical type book, it would uh, would tell you or instruct you that uh, Psalm 22 would have been the passage of scripture, they speculate this is the passage of scripture that Esther would have been reciting through her mind as she is going to meet with the king, worrying as to whether her life would be preserved or not for him to lift the scepter. Do you remember in Esther, in uh, I believe it was the second or third chapter, as she has to go in before the king and she has to make a request? And if she is not summoned by the king, she takes her life into her own hands. And she gives it to the king, basically, because if he doesn't want her in his court, he just doesn't lift his scepter. And then the guards take her out and do whatever they need to with her to get rid of her. So there's some speculation regarding from these, the, the madrish as to uh, this being the, the Psalm 22 being the psalm that she is reciting as she is walking, knowing that her very life may be taken from her in this process of trying to do the right thing for Israel. Jewish interpretations of Psalm 22 identify two specific characters uh, historically about this psalm. Now, the first one is David. David is the one who actually is is the one who penned this psalm. I want you to consider what David gives us in this. David declares first and foremost, and this is just a really quick crash course, and we're going to get in a little deeper here. David depicts or he tells about his trust in God. And then David gets into uh, his desire or his, his concern that even though he may have felt uh, um, rejected by God and rejected by men, that he still had his faith in God to be God. And in the Psalm 22, we see that he petitions God for help. He confidently resolves the, the situation he's in And then he makes a historical prophecy that in the future, much farther in the future, the nations are going to worship and praise God. Now, when we look at that and we see what David writes in Psalm 22 as, a, as kind of a background, we also see that this passage of Scripture comes in line with Esther and her story, not just because they surmise or they think that she may have been quoting this passage as she was going to meet with King Ahasuerus, but I want you to remember, first and foremost, that it is in the book of Psalms, right? Everybody got book of Psalms? What is the book of Psalms made of? Songs, Right? These are songs that Israel sang. So I have a question for you. Uh, as you. As you consider this and you look at this, I want you to think in your mind, is it easier to remember something when you put it to a tune? Okay, I'm not gonna sing Psalm 22 for you tonight, okay? Don't get scared, it's all right. Um, but, but isn't it easier to remember something when you put it to a tune? Now, I want, I want, I want you to think about this. Uh, follow me. Psalm 22 was the psalm that the Jews would sing when they would celebrate the Feast of Purim. So you know the book of Esther. If you've been listening to the study and, or watching online and, and you've, been, you've been following along with the study in Esther, you know that at the end of the book that we see that, uh, that Esther and Mordecai send out a decree to all of the Jews and all of the proselytes and tell them on the 14th and 15th day of Adar, we're going to celebrate Purim. From here on out, every generation, every year, we are going to celebrate this. Now, ironically, the Feast of Purim on Adar 13th, or 14th and 15th was celebrated every year, and it was exactly a month before the Passover. The Passover was on Nisan 15. Now, you say, Bill, what's the significance? It's, you're throwing a bunch of facts at us. I want you to consider this. So, The book of Esther establishes for the Israelite people that in Adar 14 and 15, they would sing the Psalm 22. And generations later, as they would do this every year, they would stand before the cross of Calvary and see it right before them. Not a month after they just got done singing it in celebration of the Purim Feast. Now, let me me take this a little bit further for you. So, if I said, um, I'm dreaming of a... Come on, come on. Just like the... Well, wait a second. You only sing that like once a year, right? I mean, the month of December, you hear it, you sing it, and you move on with life. Why is it that you remembered that? Because it's something that from this high all the way up to this high... Um, we every year would have this song rehearsed in our hearts and in our minds because of this time of year and what we celebrate, right? And I want you to consider that Jews, from the time they were this big to the time they got this big, every year they sang Psalm 22 for the Purim Feast. This is what they recited. This is what they sang. This was part of their culture. This was important to them. I want you to consider this, that, uh, and I didn't, I had this in my notes and I took it out, but I think it's interesting. There are three stages, really four stages, but three primary stages to the Jewish learning process. Uh, Little children would come and learn a certain part of, they, they would have to learn the law. Many of these children, before they were like five or six years old, would learn the whole law, all five books, memorize it. They would know it. And then the next schooling that they would go into is they went from like six years old on up to, uh, I guess it was 12 or 13, when they would have their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, they would be declared to be a man or woman. Um, in that process, they would learn the prophets, and then there was a third part of the study that they would do in their youth uh, that would take them to the time when they were 18, where they were able to be uh, married and so forth, that they would learn another whole part of the scripture and how to apply it. And in, that, in, in learning the law and just about memorizing the whole thing, and then learning the prophets and just about, uh, they'd memorize much of it, not maybe all of it, but many students would memorize all of it. Now, when we look in the Word of God and we see the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and these religious leaders, many of these guys had, had memorized all of it. This is why when we see Jesus being, being uh, the, lead, the rabbi, the teacher that the disciples call him, the reason they looked at him in that fashion was because he had all the scripture up here. He didn't have to go to the local synagogue to check it out. He knew it in his heart and in his mind. He was the Word, right? So when, when, when the disciples were being taught by Jesus Christ, uh, the fourth and final stage that very few would reach in the Jewish culture would be this fourth stage. And that would be when they would travel around and follow their rabbi or a rabbi and learn the practicality of the application of the law and the prophets and, and what was taught in the Old Testament and, and what they were given by God. That fourth stage was the, was the final stage And then when they got to be 30 years old and they would be finishing up that stage, they themselves then could branch out and become a traveling type rabbi. That's why when we see the disciples traveling with Jesus all over the place, this was not uncommon for a a good teacher, a rabbi, to take those disciples that really wanted to dedicate themselves to following this teacher, that they would travel all around with him to watch him and ask him questions and have him give the opportunity to teach what, what the Bible says uh, and what, what the, the, the law say and what the prophets say, so that they, too, would be able to learn how to interpret them correctly and apply them correctly. Now, I say all that to say this: Psalm 22. I want you to consider all of the young people for generations that grew up in the culture that Israel had, that every year for the Feast of Purim they recited Psalm 22 they sang the song. They knew this song. This was not uncommon to them. Tonight, we're here to celebrate the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to take the, 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 the grape juice, and we're going to take the wafer, and we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to, what many would say, celebrate what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary, but we're going to remember what he did and why he did it. And when you look at Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is not just a prophetic psalm. It's not just a psalm about the life of David, but it's a psalm that lets us get a glimpse at what Jesus Christ went through as he went to the cross of Calvary. I think it's pretty interesting that if you go to Psalm 22, and let's go ahead and let's open our Bibles and let's look there as we get to the the word of God itself. It says, To the chief musician upon Agelath Shehar, now that word there, Ajelah Shehar is uh, the melody at which this psalm would have been sung to. So, uh, you know, if, if it said, row, row, row your boat, you would sing this psalm to the melody of row, row, row your boat. Well, in Jewish culture, it was uh, Ajalath Sahar. So, a psalm of David, "'My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? "'Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime.'" But thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent, but thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, our our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered, they trusted in thee and were not confounded. Now, I want you to look here first and foremost that Jesus cries out to the Father. If you go over to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, you'll see this in the Gospels where on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As we look and we, we study this out, and I'm not going to listen, I, I, I have personally have a, the, the, the preacher, the pastor of the church that my wife grew up in, the pastor is a very learned man, knows like 18 or 20 some sacred languages. He has doctorates and several master's degrees and teaches in, in seminary way beyond where I'm at. He preached seven sermons on the fact that God did not, for, the Father didn't forsake Christ on the cross. Seven sermons, seven weeks on Sunday morning, just on that. I am not going to dive into that tonight, okay? I'm just here to reassure you when you look at Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1 and we see Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The, 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 what Jesus is going through here is the Father watched as all this happened. He's watching his son. Now I want you to consider all that's taken place. The night before Jesus ends up on the cross of Calvary, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, up on the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means the place of pressing. So Jesus goes to the, the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and as we know, there from reading the scriptures, as students of God's word, as he prays, the pressure is so great he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. The pressure is so heavy and immense on him. The pressure is taking place, the squeezing, the the, the purifying. Now you say, how could it be the purifying? It's, it's the understanding of what's going on. Jesus, remember, it's the hypostatic union. He's 100% God and 100% man. He is not part God, part man. He's 100% God, 100% man. He is still deity, verity deity. He did not lose any of his deity when he left the throne in glory. Amen? Amen. He was the same God in heaven as he is on earth. He is God. He's part of the Trinity. And as part of the Trinity, he goes to the garden and he knows what's about to happen. He knows he's gonna suffer for mankind. Listen, again, Jesus growing up in this culture, we just went through this. As a child, he began to learn going to synagogue and learning these scriptures and memorizing these scriptures and understanding all this stuff. All this was in him. He understood how to interpret the scriptures because he's God. It's his word. He understands what is about to take place in his life. He understands the punishment of sins for the world that's gonna be laid on his shoulders. He's going to God and he's crying out to God and he is begging God for help and assistance in this. But then he gets to the cross of Calvary and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see here that we need to understand, first of all, Jesus had to take the sins of the world on himself, physically, spiritually, and emotionally as a human. He was, he was 100% God, but in his humanity, he was still 100% human. And in his godhood, his deity knowledge, He understood what the physical pain was going to be, what the spiritual pain was going to be, what the emotional pain was going to be that he was going to have to face through all this. As God, living in this body of this man, 100% God, 100% man, he was going to watch what he created spit on him and hit him and put a crown of thorns upon his head and and beat him and mock him and, and carry the cross of Calvary to that place of Calvary's Hill and to nail him to that tree and to raise him up and to mock him and make fun of him in the garden of gethsemane he knew what laid before him he said how did he know psalm 22 he knew it because he wrote it and it's in the scriptures listen as he goes to the garden of gethsemane that place pressing, he knows what face what, what's facing before him but you have to understand that he has to face this without the father's assistance the father had to allow it to take place because this is what redeemed you and me from a burning hell. This is, what, this is what allowed us to have our sins to be paid for, that we would not have to spend an eternity in hell that isn't long enough to pay for them ourselves. But Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God through him. How did that happen? It happened because he, as 100% God, 100% man, took our sin on him on the cross of Calvary. And on that cross... God did not turn his back on Jesus Christ, I'd submit to you. But God could not lift a finger to help him. Jesus in his humanity and in his deity had to face this without the assistance of the Father relieving him or making it easier in any way. Now, as Jesus is on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, in Hebrew culture, in, in the culture that they grew up in, there are different types of teachings that rabbis use. And now, we, we know from studying the scripture that his own disciples referred to him as being rabbi, right? So they recognized him as a very, very gifted teacher, one who could explain the law, explain the prophets, and help them understand God's word greater. So in the process of him being a rabbi, there are different ways that rabbis taught. One of the ways they taught is called a Ramirez. Can you say that? of Ramirez. So in that idea here, a Ramirez is a teaching that actually hints to the listener of what's being implied, or if there's a hidden symbol that they need to be aware of. So when, when he, it's spelled R-E-M-E-Z, Ramirez. Y'all get that? You're looking at me kind of confused, okay? So It hints of a deeper allegorical or hidden or symbolic meaning. So as a rabbi, when he gets to the cross of Calvary, you'll see where I'm going with this in about two seconds, and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What did the Jews just recite and sing the songs of a month before for the Feast of Purim? Psalm 22. So where did their minds go when he said that? Psalm 22. You say, "Well, what's the significance of that?" Let's read the psalm. Verse six says, "But I am a worm, and no man, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of people." This is Jesus. He hangs on the cross. All they that see me, laugh me to scorn. I want you to think about all the people that knew Psalm 22, standing around the cross of Calvary, and they're looking around. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they start singing the song in their head of the Psalm 22. And they get to this place where they say, wait, they're laughing at him. Verse 27, they see me, me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lip. This is kind of the idea. We stick our tongue out at people to be disrespectful. They, this is kind of that idea here. They shake their heads. They, they just shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. See, Jesus is insulted and mocked on the cross of Calvary. In Psalm 22, it was foretold. As they're singing this song, And watching this take place right before them, I want you to consider, we go to Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 and on, and it says, And they passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, or thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocked him, and the scribes and the elders said, Come down from the cross, and we will believe thee. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he have him, For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Folks, when we look at this scripture, I want you to, again, put yourself in the place of a Jewish person who's grown up in this culture where every year they celebrated Purim reciting this thing. They knew it just like we know White Christmas. They knew Psalm 22, and they're watching this take place right before their very eyes. Look at verse uh, verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou dost make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from my womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Listen, Jesus spoke to Mary and John. If you look in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, you look at the psalmist and what the psalmist says here. He says, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from where? from my mother's belly. From from the time at which he was conceived, he understood he was a child of God. He He was of God. And in this, we see here that in the cross of Calvary, we see in John 19 verses 25 to 27, we see that Jesus has this interaction with John and his mother, and he takes care of his mother on the cross of Calvary. How about we look at verse 11 through 14? Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have set me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths. And as ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. As we know here, Jesus died of a broken heart. We know that from the beating that he took as they took the cat of nine tails with, with the pieces of pottery and so forth on there and they whipped him with it and then pulled it to rip the flesh off of him. His ribs were exposed. His spine was exposed. His, his joints and his arms and his legs. They didn't just concentrate on his back from from the back of his heels all the way up to the top of his neck, they were beating him with a cat of nine tails. So as he hangs on the cross, as we see here in Psalm 22, it is not unrealistic to consider that he could look down and his bones were being exposed in his fingers and in his arms and in his legs. As he looks down, as he tries to breathe, his ribs are exposed from the ripping of the flesh and all that took place. Folks, in John 19, we see all that took place in the beatings and what he was sent to. Let's go to verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaw. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. And Jesus cries out in John 19, 28 and 29, I thirst. As they see this and they, again, this song is going through their head. They're watching the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. Fulfill prophetic Psalm 22. Now there's some there is some uh, historical differences as to what happened here, as you read the account of what the soldiers did. They took a sponge and they dipped it in a bucket of sour wine and they tried to give it to him. Some would say uh, now the scripture says that 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 pail or that that bucket had sour wine in it that had gall or myrrh. The significance of that is that gall is like a bluish green bitter herb, and it's somewhat of a sedative type effect on you. The myrrh is a bitter gum that um, obtained a, a type of material from a bark, and it was kind of like an antiseptic. So as these, as these men were, now mind you, Rome was great at torturing people. They didn't want you to die quick. They wanted you to die slow and painful. So if they could give him something to relieve some of the pain, to keep him alive a little bit longer, they're going to do it. Now, there are some other uh, historians or people that have done research that would tell differently about what was on that sponge when they gave it to Jesus. I'm not going to get into it tonight. Uh, I've done research and research upon research and cannot find any, any. historical documents that coincide with scripture that would allow me to say definitively that that the other historical thoughts are true and we'll leave it at that how about verse 16 for dogs have compassed me about the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me they pierce my hands and my feet now i want you to consider this in verse 16 crucifixion takes place in john 20 and and we 19 and 20 and we see all that takes place there But I want you to understand, first of all, that crucifixion was not invented until several hundred years after David wrote this song, okay, first of all. Secondly, even though it was invented several hundred years later, many speculate that it didn't actually become as brutal as it did until the Romans got a hold of it several hundred years after that and perfected it. Now, I want you to understand this. There is historical data that would lead you to believe that when Jesus was just a child and Rome came in to take over, they killed several, several hundred, if not thousands of Jewish men and crucified them, and lined them along the roads of, of, of the areas around Jerusalem. So as a child, Jesus may have seen the suffering and everything that these men went through as they died on these crosses as a symbol of the Roman hatred and pain that can be caused if you don't obey them. We see here that this verse 16, I think it's interesting that it makes reference to they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, we all know there's no rec- there's no story in the life of David where David's hands and feet were pierced. But we do know that his descendant, Jesus Christ, faced that with the cross of Calvary. As we see here in verse 17 through 21, the Bible says, I may tell of my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be it not far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Now we see here again, I want you to remember, what passage of Scripture did Israel recite every year during the Feast of Purim? Psalm 22. Do you think it's ironic that they're sitting at the foot of the cross and these people are watching The soldiers take the clothes of Jesus Christ and gamble over them as fulfillment of the prophecy you see in Psalm 22. Now, mind you, Israel's always looking for a sign. They're always looking for a sign. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. That's what they keep telling. Show us a sign. You say, what do you mean by that? Okay, how about this? Elijah showed him a sign. Do you remember that sign? He put how many tubs of water, how many barrels of water on that fire? And then he prayed, and the fire came down and ate up all the water and the altar and the meat and everything around it. They got a sign. How about the children of Israel? When the three three children of Israel were put in the fiery furnace, they needed a sign. Can you get any greater sign than not being burned up in a fiery furnace? How about Daniel being put into a lion's den? They needed a sign as to who was God and who to follow. Time and time again, Israel seeks a sign. Even to this day, they still seek signs. But folks, if they look back at Psalm 22 and recognize the life of Jesus Christ and what took place on the cross of Calvary, it'd become evident to them if they would look at it through the eyes of of someone who has allowed the Holy Spirit to work in their life and convict and reveal. Listen, you can't help but see this is not circumstance. This is not happenstance. This is God fulfilling the, the, the very prophecy on the cross of Calvary with Christ and the soldiers casting lots for his clothes right there. How about verses 22 to 24? I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation while I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the uh, the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Listen, I want you to look at verse 24. And if anybody wants to have a discussion with you regarding God turning his head on Jesus Christ, look at verse 24. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the afflicted or the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Folks. Folks. Can you imagine the pain of God the Father in all of his strength and his power and the angels at his command watching his only begotten son be treated like refuse by creation? And watching it take place and hearing him cry out. Did he like what he see what he was seeing? He didn't like what he was seeing done to his son, but he loved the result, and that is the redemption of mankind. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When when Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary and God watched him go through that crucifixion and take the sins of the world on him, God was telling the world, I love you more than I love my son being comfortable. I love you more than my son being next to me. I love you more than the, the only thing that I, that I have as a son. I love you more than that, and I'm letting him take your sins on him. And in his physical form, he is taking them on him. And he's taking this beating. He's taking the ridicule. He's taking the mocking. He's doing all of this because I love you, and he loves you. But I'm here to say that God did not turn his head he watched verse 25 to 29 he says my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation now i'm not going to dive into the the exegetical study of this verse i'm just going to give you a little hint when jesus christ cried it is finished on the cross and he gave up the spirit he gave up the ghost the bible teaches that he went to abraham's bosom And he took captivity, those from the Old Testament who had sacrificed and believed and done all that for years. He went to them and he preached to them how he fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament and what all those sacrifices and what all that meant. And we see here in verse 25, "'My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord and seek him. Your heart shall live forever.'" All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee for the kingdoms is for the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations and they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship all they that go down to the dust shall bow before him and none can keep alive his own soul you Say Bill what does that mean Here it is in a nutshell David gives us in Psalm 22 what Jesus Christ accomplishes in the future. And that is that in future, we see that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. If you look in verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's. We're talking about a kingdom that's going to be the Lord's down the road. Y'all aware of what that is? When he sits on David's throne, he rules the earth. He says here, all they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. What are we going to do in the millennial kingdom? Eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust. We see here the dust, all those that die, every knee is going to bow. They're going to bow before him. We see the next thing he says here, and none can keep alive his own soul. Listen, there is absolutely nothing any one of us can do to save our own soul, to keep it alive eternally in heaven. Listen, when we look at this, we see verse 30 and 31, and I know I'm kind of going through this quickly, but I know our time is limited. Verse 30 and 31 says, A seed shall serve him, it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto the people that shall be born, and he hath done this future generations will declare the Lord is righteous. The people here referred to are those who've been reconciled to the Lord, this generation of his own people. That believing seed shall be reputed. They're going to be renowned. They're going to be known both by God and by men, the generations of children and the people of the Lord as the Jews formerly were. But upon the Jews' contempt for Christ and the gospel, the Gentiles shall come in their stead and enjoy their titles and privileges. And if you want to, you can compare this to Psalm 87.5, and you can find that information in Albert Barnes' commentary. I couldn't say it any better than he did. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and in marvelous light. This is the future. Now consider a month before Passover. <laughs> consider a month before Passover when they celebrate Purim. They sing this song again this year. They think it's another year. We're going to sing this song and celebrate how God delivered us back in the days of Ahasuerus and Esther. And they rehearse that song. The whole nation does. And a month later on, Nisan 15, they celebrate Passover. And that's when we believe Jesus was crucified. And as he's on the cross of Calvary, they're singing this as he gives them that remez. That remez and he, he gives them that, that, that idea here. Hey, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Oh, I know that song. And they start going through that song in their mind as they watch prophecy being fulfilled. They see the Son of God on the tree dying for the sins of the world. Here's the sad thing. They don't, many of them don't see it. You may be sitting here tonight. You may be watching online and you may have heard a lot of stories about Jesus. You may believe that Jesus existed. You may believe that God is there. You may believe that the church is a good thing and you may even give money to the church. You might even attend church every week. You might even be involved at the church, taking up offerings or greeting people at the door or teaching a class or you might do all kinds of things. But do you know what? Even the devil, even Satan and and his demons believe and they tremble at the belief that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. But just believing that God exists and just believing that Jesus went to the cross does not save you. It's only until you come to the place where you come by faith that you are a sinner and your sins have destined you for hell. And it's only because of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary that you can have forgiveness of your sin. And you go to him and you repent and ask him to come into your life and to forgive you for your sin. And and you give your life to him to live for him. Listen, the nation of Israel had all the prophets and all the law, and how many of them had memorized it. And here it is right before their very eyes for generations now. And they still rejected Jesus Christ was Messiah. I would hate to think that someone watching online or in this room tonight would for one moment continue your life thinking that Jesus Christ was just a good teacher. Or to sit in this room and think, well, I believe there's a Jesus I'm not asking you to believe there's a Jesus. I'm asking you to believe that Jesus paid for your sin on the cross of Calvary. And without his forgiveness, you will spend an eternity in hell. And I'm begging you to talk to God, to pray and talk with God and say, God, I recognize that Jesus Christ is the only way for me to have forgiveness. And I want Jesus Christ to come into my life and forgive me for my sin. And I want to give my life to him and live for him. If you're here today and you've never done that, if you're watching online and you've never done that, I encourage you today to take this moment and close your eyes and bow your head and pray and ask God to save you from your sin. Don't do what the nation of Israel has done and rejected the Messiah. We remember the crucifixion. And tonight we celebrate it through this table. We take this moment and we as as believers in this day and age, we take the elements of what we refer to as communion and we memorialize what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. Now, if you're here tonight and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, You can't celebrate with us what Jesus Christ did because you haven't believed on him. But right now, you can believe. Right now, you can take a moment. I want to encourage every one of us tonight to take a moment and bow our head and close our eyes. And I want you to inspect your heart. I want you to think, do you believe that Jesus Christ is genuinely the Son of God? That he took away the sins of the world on the cross of Calvary. Have you given your life to him and asked him to come into your life to forgive you for your sin? Each and every one of you tonight, take a moment and inspect your heart. If you become a believer in Jesus Christ and you've confessed your sin, my next question for you is, how are you doing spiritually? Are we living our lives like believers in Jesus Christ ought to live our lives? Are there things in our lives that shouldn't be there? I want you to right now, if you could, just bow your head and close your eyes and give those things to God. You say, Pastor Bill, I know there's stuff that I'm doing that I should not be doing. Listen, talk to God about it right now.